Welcome to the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Hi there, welcome to another installment of Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. I'm John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills on the radio. This is our 14th podcast. We're sponsored by Sullivan's Malt, uh, Sullivan's Brewing Company of Kilkenny, Ireland. The makings of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. And we talk about the Bills and we talk about beer. Both are pretty good topics right now. The Bills are very good. The beer is pretty good as well. We're going to talk about beer with our guest later on, Butch Elmgren. He's the man who runs Thomas O'Reilly's Public House in Sandy Springs, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. He's got a great perspective on COVID. He opened that place like a month before the COVID shutdown began. So he's got a great perspective on how to deal with COVID and all the restrictions. Talks about his place, talks about his uh, background, and he talks about uh, the opening the uh, of Thomas O'Reilly's. We'll talk with uh, Butch Elmgren coming up on the podcast today. Also going to be joined by a very special guest, Hall of Fame running back Thurman Thomas of the Buffalo Bills, one of the great pieces of the Bills' Super Bowl era. Thurman has some interesting thoughts on the Bills as they play so well, including Monday night's win over San Francisco. He agrees with me that this Bills team might be the best Bills team since the Super Bowl era. We'll talk with Thurman about that. Also going to talk with Thurman about Zach Moss, Bills rookie running back, who had a very costly fumble right near the Bills' own goal line in the second quarter. It cost Buffalo a touchdown in the game and how Zach Moss sat out for a big chunk of the game. I think it was 45 consecutive plays he sat out. What that might mean to Zach Moss. Thurman Thomas coming up today on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff Podcast. We do talk about beer. We do talk about the Bills. It is a pleasure to talk about the Buffalo Bills these days. Everybody's talking about the Buffalo Bills. Nine and three. 75% of the regular season complete now. Four games left, including Sunday night against Pittsburgh. Monday night, a win over San Francisco. You know, I thought it might be a tough game. I really did. I thought it'd be much tougher than it was. I figured the Niners, uh, desperate in their hunt for a playoff spot, the Niners with a very good defense, getting healthier, I thought they might give the Bills some problems. They didn't. The Bills were dominant right from the start, from their opening drive of the game. Yes, it didn't wind up in the end zone, but they dominated all the way down the field. And one thing that's happened, I think, in the last couple of games now, three or four games, the Bills have become much more physical. We talked about it on this podcast a while ago, how they lacked a certain physicality. Even when they were winning, they were sort of a finesse team, a passing team. Last couple of weeks, they've been an outstanding running team, both run defense and running the ball themselves. I think they have found their physicality. It helps to get their offensive line back intact, but I do think they're a much more physical team than they were uh, even a month ago. And we can't ignore what Josh Allen did. We, we like to talk about the other things on this podcast and talk about them during the course of the week, kind of picking up nuances of what makes the Bills so good, but you cannot ignore Josh Allen and his game Monday night against the Niners. 80% completion, some spectacular passes, uh, an MVP-type performance. He's got to get attention now for MVP. He had a pass in the second quarter. He started hot and stayed hot, by the way, the entire game. He had a pass in the second quarter, sort of lofted a pass downfield to Ricky Gabriel Davis in the second quarter for a first down, not a touchdown. It was a perfect throw, a perfect throw right into the heart of the zone defense that the Niners were trying to play. A spectacular throw. And what gets me most excited about Josh Josh Allen, to be honest with you, is that he gets better. He's improving almost on a straight line, a straight slope upwards. I mean, he's better now, three quarters of the way through the regular season than he was when the season began. 
He's much better now than he was when the season began. He's much better now than he was uh, a year or two ago, right? As a rookie, he was good. People who wonder and still say, well, maybe he is a franchise quarterback. No, no. That conversation ended a year or so ago, maybe a year and a half ago. He is beyond just maybe he's a franchise quarterback. Now it's like maybe he's an MVP. Maybe he's one of the top five quarterbacks in the game. He could be. The ceiling is limitless for Josh Allen because he gets better. As I said, he gets he improves on a, almost a week-to-week basis now. Who knows how good he can be? Time for Bills fans to let themselves go, to dream big things for the 2020 Buffalo Bills. Why not? Why not? Why not dream about going deep into the playoffs, getting a home playoff game, winning it, and going on? Why not dream about going to the Super Bowl? They're that good. They demonstrated this past Monday night. They're that good. Dream big, Bills fans. You've earned it, and this team merits it. Dream big. Next up for the Bills, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers on Sunday night. Steelers coming off a loss. That's not going to be easy for Buffalo. Steelers are good, but I'll be honest with you, even with their gaudy record and just one loss, 11 wins, one loss, I don't know if the Steelers are a better team than the Buffalo Bills. We'll dive into it during the course of the week and find out. But I don't think the Steelers are are considerably better than the Buffalo Bills. We'll find out. All right, good podcast coming up. We start in a moment with Thurman Thomas, the Hall of Fame running back. He he talks about his off-field work, his post-football career, and his company, 34 Group. He talks about the Thurman Thomas Family Foundation. And he talks about his most recent brush with greatness. He has a knack for finding famous people and, and talking to them. He mingles with the the rich and famous. Thurman Thomas coming up as we continue on with Sullivan's Pro Football Podcast. We are honored to have Hall of Fame running back Thurman Thomas on the line with us now for the podcast. Thurman, good to see you. I miss you. I don't see you anymore. How have you been? Oh, it's been great, John. Uh, you know, I miss you guys too. I'll talk to Tasker every now and then doing the group chat. chat and, uh, you know, he's... Uh, Oh, we're talking about, you know, how he misses guys and he, he'll, he'll put on a group text. You know, I, I really miss seeing Thurman once a week, you know, because he don't do the show anymore. But, uh, hey, you know, things happen, but we're continuing to be a close family and uh, everything's good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I, I miss you, too. It was great. It was always uh, something to look forward to every week to have you come in there and do your segment. Right. It was. It really was. Yep. We're talking to you the day after the Bills' remarkable Monday night win over uh, the 49ers. Uh, you watched the game, I'm sure. What did you think of that performance last night? Um, you know what? Uh, you know, I, I thought it was a great performance uh, by the Buffalo Bills. Uh, you know, San Francisco hasn't been the team that they have been, even though they went to the Super Bowl last year. They've had a lot of injuries <clears throat> to their to their football team. But uh, going on the road and really, you know, really establishing the line of scrimmage. I, you know, San Francisco is a team that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's going to run the football. And I thought the Bills, but I tell you what, I, I guarantee you guys were feeling a little bit sore coming back on the trip uh, uh, from Arizona yesterday from playing the 49ers because they are a tough physical football team. Man. You know, the Bills have been kind of, you know, up and down when they talk about the run game. But uh, I, I think those guys did an excellent job, even with the turnover that happened with Zach Moss down at the end zone. You know, those guys kept their composure. And uh, and what can you say about, uh, you know, Josh Allen, man? He continues to get better week in and week out. And uh, it, it was great to for them to uh, get a big road victory like that, really on the big stage, too. I want to talk about a couple of those issues. But starting with the physical nature, it was a physical game. And, there, you know, the Bills now have won five of their last six, Thurman. 
but around a month ago, it, it struck me, and I talked to Tasker about it, how they weren't a real physical team. They were, they were not dominating at the line of scrimmage. But we've seen them do that now, really, against the Chargers and against the 49ers this week. They really have become a more physical team, haven't they? I think they have, and I think the number one problem, uh, the number one thing that uh, that's about that is that, you know what, they're getting healthier right now. I mean, it's great to see Matt Milano back out on the football field for the first time in I don't know how many weeks. And uh, Levi Wallace being out on the football field, I mean, they're getting healthy at the right time. And uh, you know what? It's one of those times, Murph, where, you know, uh, I think when we were playing, you know, guys were and people were saying, you know, we're not a physical football team. And when we played like the New York Giants or the Redskins or the Cowboys, you know, the AFC has always kind of had that label of being like a team that is a, a conference that is not physical. And uh, for them to really, um, you know, go up there in, in Arizona and play a real physical football team, and they talked about it on the broadcast with Lewis Riddick and Brian Greasy about, you know what, the corners are going to have to play a special uh, game in this game. And uh, Trey White and Levi Wallace and, and Poirier and Micah High, those guys were physical last night, and it really showed them because they were up at the line of scrimmage. You know, San Francisco doesn't run a, a very a offense that where you have three wide or four wide. You know, they – you know, they tend to put two wide receivers, a fullback, and, and try to pound the ball, which is their best uh, thing on their offense. So uh, I give the guys credit, man. They hung in there and, and played a hell of a game last night. You know, let's talk about Josh Allen, and he doesn't need you or I to keep throwing bouquets at his feet today. Everybody <laughs> around the country is doing it. But the one thing that strikes me is how Josh always improves. He's better now than he was earlier this season. He's certainly better than he was a couple of years ago when he first got here. That is really the most encouraging thing, I, I think, about watching Josh Allen. And, and that's what you want as a quarterback. Uh, you want on your football. You want him to keep getting better and better and better. And I think what really made Josh coming into this year being so confident is that, you know what, <clears throat> I mean, last year they had John Brown, they had Cole Beasley, and they had a guy, Stephon Diggs. And, man, you talk about a guy who is really – making a difference. He's out there on the football field. I mean, he's out there talking trash to anybody that says anything to him. So, I mean, Josh Allen <clears throat> has a lot of confidence in him and uh, it's showing, man. It, You know, the you know, you talk about Josh Allen, you talk about how strong of his arm that he has, but you know what? Last night he had some really nice touch throws and, uh, and he's been doing that all season long. So, uh, you know, I think he's finally learning and understanding the game and uh, I'm, I'm glad that he's on our football team. You like the fact that Stephon Diggs talks trash <laughs> once in a while, huh? Oh, absolutely, man. <laughs> you have to do that sometimes. I mean, you know, I, usually defenses are the, are the guys that talk a lot of the trash, but you know what, for this guy to go out and do it, and I think that kind of carries over to the football team, too, to see that, okay, this guy, and he's busting his tail every single game, uh, every single play. He's blocking or running plays, and and when you see that kind of guy that you have on the football field that's willing to do anything and talk trash to anybody – because uh, I'm sure him and Richard Sherman have some words for each other last night, but I'm, I'm so glad that he's on our football team. We'll talk about the rookie running back, Zach Moss, who had an interesting night with the, the fumble right after the Bills stopped the, the Niners on fourth down. And then Zach Moss sat out for, I think we counted him, 45 consecutive plays. He didn't play. Singletary right. got every snap. Uh, what do you think goes through a rookie's or any, any player's head when they're basically pulled from the game because of a fumble like that? 
You know, it's a, it's a learning experience, uh, John. It's just a learning experience. I mean, he's never been put in that situation before. But I think if he, if he goes back throughout his career, even in high school or even in college, you know, there was probably an episode like that, uh, something that happened way back when. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think – but I think with the leadership that this football team has and, and the way that uh, Sean McDermott uh, running the ship over there, I'm sure he'd sit down and talk to Zach and say, you know, hey, what – just get your composure, you know, probably going to sit you out for a little bit or whatever. And I think as a young football player, you know what, it's a learning experience for him. I mean, Josh had to go through that his first year. Uh, Jim Kelly had to go through it. I had to go through it my first year. So it's just a learning experience. And I'm sure if he's put in that situation again, you know, instead of reaching for the football, he's gonna, he'll, next time he'll let it hit his stomach before he decides to go. What do you think of those two, Zach Moss and Devin Singletary? How are they uh, different, do you think, as running backs? Well, I think, uh, you know, Zach is – not a speed guy, you know, he's not a shifty guy. He's kind of, you know, I'm running downhill and get as many yards as I possibly can. And Devin is the guy that, you know, he he's, he's he can be a special running back in the National Football League and especially with us. I wish, you know, they can run a little bit more screen uh, with him, put him out in uh, pass patterns a little bit more, but they complement each other very, very well. And uh, it, it I know a couple of weeks ago when, I mean, they rushed for what, over 150, 175 yards, you know? Yep. It kind of reminded me of the old days of myself and Kenny Davis. You know, you have to have that one-two punch. And uh, uh, so, I, you know, it, it's a good learning experience for both of those guys. And uh, we're, we're going to need them both. Right? As soon as this weather turns uh, pretty cold here in Buffalo and looks like – and it looks like hopefully that you still – we're still kind of praying that we're going to have our first playoff game here in Buffalo in a long, long time. Um, fans probably won't be able to attend. But uh, you know what? Uh, it, it's not going to be very pretty weather, I can tell you that. What does uh, why as well as they throw the ball and as well as they threw it last night? Why do you think it might be important for the Bills to have an effective, if not a great, but an effective running game as well? Well, I mean, if if, if you're going to play teams like Kansas City, if you're going to play teams like Pittsburgh, uh, who hasn't looked very well in the past couple of weeks, but if you're going to play a team like Kansas City, you know it, it's the old cliche that everybody talks about: the longer you keep them on the sideline the better your chances are of winning. And I think when you can have um, a balance of somewhat uh, with the Bills, it, it may not be 51-49 like Marv Levy always used to say uh, that that's what we need to do. It might be 75-25, but you have to keep the defense honest because, you know, if you're going to sit there and pass the ball all, all day, as Bruce Smith would say, that's what I like. If you're going to sit back and drop the back 50, 55, 60 times a game, that – playing right into my hand and so uh but I think you know with this league and and with these teams coming around you know they are seeing now the value of a running game when you when the league average of scoring is up so you have to keep those teams on the sideline if there were you mentioned the the old days and it was funny I was walking out of uh Bill Stadium last night after the game and said to the guy who worked on our broadcast with me, I said, you know, there's very little doubt after that performance against uh, the 49ers, this is the best Bills team since the Super Bowl era, right? I think they are. They're most talented and, and they play well on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, and you know what? In, in, and I think that also too, Murph, and, uh, in this, and let's hope that this can be a team that can over the next four or five years continue to get better and be great and be one of the elite teams in the National Football League. But I think it all starts with Sean McDermott. Uh, Man, this dude has done an outstanding job of coaching these young men. As Marv Levy would always say, coaching these young men. Uh, (laughs) No, he has some some great coaches over there. 
uh, Brian Dable, you know, as good as he has been with Josh Allen, you know, now we're going to be in kind of a situation where, you know what, he might get some head coaching opportunities. So, sure. uh, so you know, it's, it's, it's good and it's bad. But uh, I do think this team is uh, definitely ready to make a run over the next three to five years, barring that they stay healthy. Uh, you know, I know it's a couple of contracts that have to be signed uh, with Matt Milano coming up. Uh, you know, pretty soon Josh Allen, Tremaine Edmonds, you know, those contracts are going to be have to taken care of. But uh, right now, if they can keep they can keep this effort and this young football team, which is a very young football team together, you know, this is a team that you have to be reckoned with for the next three to five years. You touched on this a moment ago, Thurman, the fact that there are no fans yet at Bill Stadium. There probably won't be, even for a home playoff game. And you're a guy who, when the Bills are home in Orchard Park, you spend a lot of time on the sidelines kind of enveloping all that noise and that craziness. It's, it's, I'm beginning, I thought about it last night. It's kind of a tragedy that Buffalo Bills fans are not able to see this team up close in person this year. It really is, Murph. I mean, it's, you know, I, I talked to a lot of the guys over there and they, you know, and they say, you know, they absolutely miss the fans. You know, the fans are a big part of it, especially here in the Buffalo area. And I mean, when we play, you know, fans used to be like, you know, what we were confident that you guys were going to win. And, and to have that crowd noise uh, in the background against a certain team uh, in the stadium there was very valuable uh, to our football team. And uh, it is a little different, but uh, you know what? It's, it's 2020, Murph, and, uh, you know, nothing surprises me anymore. And, uh, <laughs> you know, this like I've been telling a lot of people, you know, this could be the year that the Bills go to the Super Bowl and win, and we won't even see it in, in uh, live person. <laughs> I don't even want to think that way. Exactly. <laughs> a couple of non-football things. Tell me about your work with 34 Group, what kind of projects you're working on now and how that's going for you. Oh, it's going real well. You know, my, me and my wife and I started a company years ago, and uh, we're a construction management company, a minority-owned business here in the Buffalo area and in the state of New York. Uh, you know, we, we've done really, really well. You know, we're over at Roswell. We're over at ECMC. Uh, we started a project over at Albright Knox. Uh, museum. So <clears throat> things have been working well for us. Uh, you know, we're, we're thinking about maybe having an opportunity to maybe move to a couple of different states. Uh, so, I mean, work has been really great. Uh, you know, I love my employees and uh, we've done a fantastic job here in the Buffalo area, which I really wanted to be a part of. And uh, so, you know, besides that, Merv, we're just plugging along and uh, doing what we can do right now as a company, which is very, very well. You know, I know you, you have plugged into this community, and, and typically this time of year, you, you're right, Patty, your family, you have the Thurman Thomas Family Foundation. I went to a couple of your Christmas events. So what do you got planned for the holidays this year for the foundation? What do you got in the, in the hopper here? Well, we're, you know, we're not going to be able to, to go and have the party this year. Right. So we're going to do, do, do an auction online. You know, we're going to auction off some Christmas trees. And we, you know, Murph, I got about 10 Christmas trees at my house now. They're all over the place. At Patty's. They're all decorated? It all decorated, all decorated. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to have an auction, a free auction online uh, to uh, to sell these trees for the holidays party that we can't have this year. So, uh, you know, my wife and my kids, man, they never stop with anything. And I, I thought it was going to be like, okay, well, we're just going to maybe just maybe do a Zoom call with some people or whatever. Yeah. You know, we're going all out on Zoom calls and everything, <laughs> these trees. So, uh no, we're going to continue to do it. I mean, this is an area that, if, you know, these people in Buffalo have really, you know, it, it feels like home for me. And uh, they've really accepted me in the community, in the city, and, and everywhere. Uh, there, there's a Buffalo Bills fan bar or whatever. And uh, 
So it's just my time to give back, Murph, and I, yeah. we really enjoy as a family doing that. Last thing I want to ask you about, when you came on the radio with us for a couple of years, it was one of my favorite parts because you always had some recent brush with celebrity. You always ran into incredible celebrities uh, from, you know, all over the place in the COVID era. Have you had a chance to bump into anybody who of note? Of note, I mean, who, who's the biggest guy you've seen lately or woman? Um, actually, it wasn't a guy. It was uh, it was a young lady. Uh, it was Elon Tiger's ex-wife. Really? Where'd you see her? In Florida. Like <laughs> in an event, or you just passed each other? Uh, out, on, out on a golf course. I was actually playing golf with. Um, it was myself, Patty. And her fiance boyfriend Jordan Cameron, who used to actually play in the National Football League, and had an opportunity to uh, to meet her, you know, and uh, very nice young lady. And uh, so that's haven't really been anywhere have to meet yeah. anybody. So, <laughs> but yeah. I you thought I'd bring that out there. <laughs> Please tell me you didn't bring up his, uh, her breakup with her former husband. No, I did right? not. No, <laughs> no, 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 I did not. Uh, you know, was a very nice meeting. Got to meet uh, Jordan and Elon's uh, little son, Arthur. So um, Patty obviously was there with me, and they had a great conversation. And uh, just another friend that we know now. Yeah, see, you're still doing it. Still meeting celebrities, even in COVID. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, Thurman, thanks for this. It is great catching up with you. Thank you very much. All right, brother. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. With John Murphy. Got a great story to talk about this segment of the podcast. We're with the man who owns Thomas O'Reilly's public house way down south in Sandy Springs, Georgia, outside Atlanta. Butch Elmgren is his name, and Butch is on the line with us. Butch, thanks very much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Great to be here, Murph. Thanks for having me. Hey, tell me first uh, what Thomas O'Reilly's public house is all about. What kind of a place do you have down there? Yes, yeah, so it's you know we it's a great Irish pub. Uh, I actually bought this pub in January of 2020. It was an existing location and uh, just needed a little love and care and attention. And and I've been looking to you know to do this my whole life. Basically, we have a traditional Irish music session that comes there every Tuesday night. We've got you know all the staples you would want on the menu, and it's just great elevated sort of gastro pub food. Uh, and of course, uh, great Guinness on tap, great Sullivan's uh, uh, black marble salad on tap, and the, and the red ale. So uh, we're, we're we've been banging away since really. February we closed and we reopened in March for uh, yeah. after some renovations. You said you you've been looking to do something like this your entire life and basically your entire professional life has been spent uh, spent in this kind of industry, right? You were uh, working like as a liquor distributor and a and a distributor of uh, what beer and ale before this. Sure. Well, I started. I actually started in the bar and restaurant business, running mom and pops, and and I worked for a hotel and casino management chain, um, helping them with with. Uh, operations that needed assistance around the country. And then I worked in the hotel, running food and beverage in the hotel business for a while. Uh, and I uh, got hit with the recession in 2008 and, and laid off from a Marriott property here in Atlanta and uh, ended up being an equity partner, a small equity partner in the same Gria brand. And that just sort of started me in, in, into that side of the business. Uh, and we did that for about seven years and sold that successfully. Uh, and then I was um, working for small brands, trying to help them find their way into the market. I had a small consulting company. I, lo I love to tell the stories of brands. Uh, in the last three years before I bought the pub, I was a national brand director for Jesse James, America's Outlaw Spirits, uh, selling bourbon all over the country. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about your place, Thomas O'Reilly's Public House in Sandy Springs. Looking at the website, reading up about it, great pictures, looks like a fantastic place, and a tremendous story about the name. Can you tell us that story, why you're called Thomas O'Reilly's? I can. You know, I bounced around a lot of names when I was trying to put the concept together uh, and just I needed to find something that was sort of Atlanta related. 
Uh, and I'm Catholic raised, uh, born and raised in Savannah, Georgia as an Irish Catholic. And I'll tell you now, uh, my last name is Elmgren and they didn't care in Savannah if your name was Jablonski or O'Malley. If you were Catholic in Savannah, you were Irish. And so we grew up, <laughs> we grew up very culturally in that. And it's one of the biggest celebrations in the world down there. But, uh, I tell you that to say that I, um, I was looking for a name for the pub and there's a great story, um, uh, about a father, Thomas O'Reilly who was the, they call him the priest that saved Atlanta. At the time of the Civil War, Sermon was marching on Atlanta. And the Cliff Notes version of this story is uh, he was going to burn everything to the ground and O'Reilly threatened to excommunicate any Catholic in the Union Army that touched a church. Uh, and there was a lot of Catholics. There was a lot of Irish Catholics in the Union Army. And they ended up surrounding uh, five churches in downtown Atlanta, all of which still stand today, including Immaculate Conception Church where Father O'Reilly is buried. Uh, the courthouse and uh, city hall and 400 surrounding homes because they were afraid if fire caught and made it to the churches, they'd still get excommunicated, wouldn't be able to make it into heaven. So it, he saved about a third of Atlanta at the time of the Civil War, and it allowed for Reconstruction basically to happen quicker in Atlanta to come back kicking after the Civil War. And I read that story. And I got thinking, I wonder how many bars or pubs are named after Catholic priest. Probably not yeah, too many. I, there, there's, <laughs> there's not that many out there, I don't think. I don't think. Hey, I'm not, I, of course, everybody's been to Atlanta. I've been to Atlanta and the suburbs around Atlanta, but I've never been to Savannah, Georgia, which is a, a kind of a hotbed of Irish uh, culture and influence. Tell me about there. You grew up there, as you mentioned, right? I did, yes. Yeah. So Savannah was a port of entry there. There were several ports of entries that uh, the Irish made, um, you know, made use of, including New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, uh, New Orleans, believe it or not, uh, and Savannah. And so Savannah actually started out, they were brought over as indentured servants, apparently. So they were digging a canal on the outside of Savannah, the Ogeechee Canal, and they would just buy essentially boatloads of, of indentured servant Irish to come and dig the canals. And when they got ran out of those, they bring another boatload over. And there's still two developments, uh, Yamacraw Village and the old Frogtown, which is a, a development in, in Savannah that were where the Irish uh, were encamped. And to this day, Savannah's population uh, claims roughly 10 or 12% of Irish uh, heritage in Savannah's population. And for a city of, the city's about 135, 140,000 people and the county's about 250, 275,000 people counting a military base that's there. Uh, and so that's, a, you know, it's a pretty healthy group of uh, people who consider themselves at least some part of Irish. Sure. Yeah. I, I, it's on my bucket list. I got to go there. Hey, but um, Thomas O'Reilly's, uh, you mentioned you were, you were working in this industry, restaurant, uh, bars and supplies for a while. Um, tell me about trying to kick it off this past spring and how difficult that was to do. You opened, what, six weeks right before uh, everything hit, right, the quarantine? Well, not, not even that much. We, um, we completed the deal. The deal started at the end of 2019, and we completed the deal on January 17th of 2020. So we actually reopened our doors uh, on March the 3rd, 2020. And in less than two weeks, um, you know, we, we had to back down to just to go only business uh, and, you know, obviously it was a very trying time. We had, the, the pub historically has a huge St. Baldrick's Day fundraiser, uh, you know, where people shave heads for children's pediatric cancer. And we helped support that. Uh, and they were outside setting up the side to tell them stop, uh, you know, because we weren't going to be able to have the kind of event that we thought we were going to have. And so uh, and that's just kind of how we got introduced into the world. And, and, you know, we've been doing everything we can ever since just to, to you know, to keep our doors open and to keep people coming in and, and give them the confidence that they can come in. Now you talk about doing everything you can. That includes a lot of charity work and providing meals for, uh, you know, frontline workers. Can you talk about that, what you've done uh, in a charitable sense at Thomas O'Reilly's? 
Sure. And that, and that's something actually it's, it, you know, it gets considered charity because it's coming out of the pub. But in reality, it's our, it's our customers and our customer base that are, that are helping provide all that stuff. There, there was a great tradition at the pub, which we maintain today. There's a chalkboard behind the bar that if you come in and you know, your friend Billy's coming uh, to the bar next Thursday, you can leave it. You can go ahead and buy a drink for Billy and leave it on the, leave it on the board there when he gets there. And if he comes tomorrow, if he comes two years from now, Billy's drink will be waiting for him. <laughs> and so we, um, we, we kind of parlayed that into, um, you know, helping the guys that were, that were the tip of the spear, the police and the fire uh, and the first responders and, uh, and it evolved into uh, healthcare workers as well, where we put it out on our website when we were able to only do to go food uh, that you could, when you placed your order, you could order a first responder meal. And basically that bought any first responder that came by the pub to get it to go food. Uh, and that's how it started. Uh, their meal was paid for. Uh, and word started to spread about it. And I ended up with a couple of corporate partners that were buying blocks of meals and we were delivering twice a week to area hospitals, 50, 60 meals at a time to the ER departments and things like that. And I, I, I've lost count now, but uh, between the two different programs going to the hospitals and the police officers who still continue to come in every day and every week in the fire department um, to eat, we're well over 2000 meals that have been provided through the generosity of our customers. Wow. And you also, I guess, have partnered up with a assisted living facility for senior citizens providing them meals there is there's a uh, there was a uh, uh, it's it, they do have a small assisted living portion of it but it primarily is uh, a senior living facility and obviously those facilities are some of the, the hardest hit uh, they have to be extremely careful about what they do and, and how they do it because um, everybody there is vulnerable and their kitchen had COVID issues early on and they've not really been able to get back to a point where they're comfortable having their, their, their people come down into the dining room to eat, etc. And so they were sourcing not just from me, but from other places, um, meals um, ready to go. So we would, you know, they'll call and say, can you do Tuesday and can you do this? And, and we'll box up. And at one point we were doing as many as 500 meals a week. Uh, and again, that's something that, um, you know, we do it a little bit less of a, of a, um, of a cost margin or a profit margin on that to, in order to help them get done. But it's one of the things that's helped me keep my doors open sure. um, through, through the course of this, being able to find really creative ways like that to go out and help people. Well, as you said, your doors are open at Thomas O'Reilly's Butch. And you're, um, you mentioned to me before you came on there, you're about 50% capacity. And it's different everywhere that we get listeners. But here in upstate New York, uh, for instance, here in Buffalo, a lot of, a lot of bars and restaurants are totally shut down for in uh, restaurant dining. Um, can you tell, you got an interesting perspective on the, maybe the public health threat for in restaurant dining. Now, talk about that if you would. And uh, with your limited capacity, how you kind of get people through that? Sure. And I, one of the things that I think the world is going to find out is it doesn't matter if you tell them they can have 100% capacity or if they can have 2% capacity. It's customer confidence. It's consumer confidence that's going to guide whether or not that person comes into that building. And in a lot of ways, you're safer coming to a restaurant that is that is doing what we do, that we keep gaps in between the tables and we sanitize regularly and we all, all of our staff, which is mandated, wear masks. We check temperatures of everybody that works for us as soon as they come in the door every single day. If you even call in when hungover, you're out until we, you can get yourself cleared and come back into the building, you know, and, and we, you know, we take it seriously. And in a lot of ways you're safer doing that than you are going with your buddies to go drink in the backyard or hang out or do whatever it is you're going to do, because you don't know what's going on there and nobody's wiping down the back of that pickup truck or, or cleaning the kitchen table. And so the reg restaurant industry has stepped up massively. We've spent thousands and thousands of dollars, every restaurant that still is out there and even, even the ones that weren't to go get the extra PPP, 
I mean, PPE, the uh, protective gear, the masks, the, the thermometers, the uh, extra hand sanitizers. We've got hand sanitizing stations throughout the whole pub. Anywhere you walk, as soon as you walk, if you want to touch something, you can, you can hit a hand sanitizer. So, um, you know, Georgia, I think, caught a little bit of grief early on because they said we opened up too early. And some of the press was bad because they said, oh, well, he's opened up, uh, talking about Governor Kemp, who I will tell you right now, he's done an amazing job. Uh, and every one of his staff has done an amazing job trying to understand through something that no one could understand. They're making decisions based on what advice they're being given, and they're being given great advice. And Governor Kemp's done a great job down here. But he understands that a mask mandate doesn't save anybody. You have to want. You have to have the people to want to wear that mask every day. I walk into the Kroger that's across the street from me, and they're having to having to get somebody out because some, some jerk doesn't want to take his own responsibility to, you know, to do it. It's cons consumer confidence and the people understanding that this is going to get us to this next level. And what he did by allowing these businesses to come back and and then monitor them and say, if you're not doing it correctly, we're coming in and we're laying the hammer down on top of you. And, you know, and that's, to me, that's the better way to do it. But let the people who know what they're doing, we all went through classes. You can get on the Department of Georgia Department of Public Health uh, and study, you know, what the requirements are and the CDC's recommendations. I mean, the CDC is right here in Atlanta. So whatever they're able to recommend to us and we follow and you're better off knowing that that place you're going to go eat is doing the things correct and you go and you're more comfortable and you can, it's consumer confidence is what's going to come back. And that's, yeah. and, and we, we try to, communication, by the way, is also the key. And I, I got a little long-winded here, but if something happens or something changes or something is going on, you have to communicate. You have to communicate in a way that's helpful, helpful to your guests and not, um, yeah, I'll give an example. I won't name the place, but I was, I was heartbroken to see a place near me where I live here um, in, in Atlanta that reopened and they posted on their website, uh, know this, 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 not this is the things we're doing to protect you. And to me, that's the kind of communication that needs to be out there. And to, it's helped. It's worked for us. Yep. Really good perspective. Butch, I want to talk to you for a minute about, uh, about beer and at Thomas O'Reilly's uh, public house outside Atlanta. Uh, obviously, you, you're an Irish pub. You sell a lot of Irish beer. You pour in Guinness. You pour Semitics and you do pour Sullivan's. How does Sullivan stack up with those others, you know, in terms of interest from the public and in terms of uh, the reaction you get from folks? So, I, I you know, I, a little bit of my background, I think we talked about already was, you know, working with these small brands. And I love to tell the stories of brands and I love to tell the stories of And Sullivan's has a great story. And, you know, I, I always like to say in, in the in the in that business, in the wine spirits and beer business, that the label will sell the first beer, but it's what's in the can that sells the next one. And Sullivan's, the stuff that's in that, it's amazing. Uh, you know, at one point, uh, I was told that, uh, you know, as soon as you get this on tap, you'll never sell another Smittix. And I'm telling you right now, it's catching up quickly. It's a hand sell in the beginning. You got to be able to tell somebody, hey, listen, this, what a great story. Listen, this is the Smittix family back in the Kilkenny distillery, excuse me, brewery, and they're making an amazing beer. And once we get people on it, it's, 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 it's phenomenal how many people come back for it. And we've on tap, we have uh, the black marble stout. We also have the uh, malting red ale on tap. And then we have the golden in the cans right now in Georgia. I can't get the, uh, I can't get the golden on tap, but we sell as many of those golden cans. I'll walk around and see, you know, 20 of them scattered throughout the bar at any given time. So we're, it's, it's a brand that's emerging here. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm hoping that uh, they get a little bit more. I'm not the kind of person that says, no, I only want this and nobody else can have it. I, you know, to me, a rising tide raises all ships and I want sure. everybody to grab it and, 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 and get a hold of it and, and really make it a great brand. Mention how uh, 
you know, a flashy can or a different looking uh, packaging might sell the first beer, but it doesn't necessarily follow you'll sell another one. Uh, have you found that to be the case? Because there's a lot of almost trendy beer out there, you know, and people will go, uh, go to great lengths to try to produce something different. Uh, you've seen that, I'm sure. I have absolutely, but I, I think there's no loyalty in that. It's th that particular that particular line of thinking to me is, hey, we got to get this one out here, and you're already thinking about whatever your next one needs to be because you don't think you're going to be able to keep and maintain and sell this one. And and I and I like the brands that get out there and say, hey, this is our line. These are the things that we do well, and we're going to do it. And I don't have to put some flashy, groovy label with a really funny name on another IPA. And God bless everybody who loves IPAs. I'm not an IPA man, but every distiller, every brewery in the world launches 17 IPAs with 15 different names and they bring them to me daily, um, you know, five or six at a time. And what's more, what's better is to be consistently good at the, at the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And that's what Sullivan's does. Quite frankly, that's what Guinness did. Guinness has always been, you know, they now have other things that they're doing, but that's the, that's the model that's going to have you successful in the long run. Keep putting the good stuff where it's supposed to be. Hey, but to kind of wrap things up, you've offered me at least some, some hope for the future when you talk about uh, how restaurants uh, uh, can sort of get us through the next couple of tough months, I guess, with COVID and there is a vaccine coming. And, and as you point out, uh, for the right kind of restaurant that pays attention to what their customers need and what their customers are thinking about, there, there's a future ahead. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, I guess, right? I absolutely agree with that. And I, I think, you know, there's right now the things that are missing in my business, and I'm sure other businesses are the same, is people are not going to an office, so there's not an office lunch crowd. And then because people are not going to an office, it's also not a happy hour. If you want to go hide from your spouse for two hours, you got to bring her with her because she's in the room next door working, you know, <laughs> but, and then, and then the late night business. And so, but I think as soon as the vaccines and people start to see that they're, that's and the consumer confidence starts to come back, that's going to be the thing that comes back first is those business lunches and that happy hour business. And I think the late night business will come eventually. Uh, but there's hope. People just have to understand, do your research, look at somebody's website, if that restaurant doesn't look to you, if you walk up to the door and there's people everywhere and you're not comfortable, that's great. That's your decision to make when you walk up to the door of that, that restaurant. But don't let somebody give you an edict that tells you that you can't go to, go somewhere and do something when there are people out there like me who are great, who are operators, who are greatly concerned with your safety. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that you're safe and you have a great experience in our place. It's a great message. Butch, thanks very much for this. Good luck to you. Murph, thanks very much. Great to be here. Well, that's going to do it for this week's installment of Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. And I want to thank our guests, including Butch Elmgren, the proprietor of Thomas O'Reilly's Public House in Sandy Springs, Georgia, in the Atlanta area, one of the Atlanta suburbs. You should visit his place. They pour Sullivan's, but it sounds like a great place. I can't wait to get there someday when we can travel once again, perhaps. Uh, it is. Uh, sounds like a tremendous place, Thomas O'Reilly's public house. He has some good perspectives on uh, COVID and how to do business in the COVID era as well. Also, thanks to our buddy Thurman Thomas, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the Western New York resident now. Great perspective on Zach Moss and his fumble in the game on Monday night against uh, the San Francisco 49ers. Great perspective on just how good this Bills team might be. Also, some thoughts on his 34 group you heard him talk about and on the Thurman Thomas Family Foundation. Our thanks to Thurman. Great to talk with him. Catch up with him. Thanks for supporting us too. And if you have thoughts on the podcast, maybe ideas on how to make it better, critiques, reviews, ideas, uh, maybe you can uh, uh, so solve some of our problems. Send us an email. Our email address is profootballkickoff at uh, gmail.com. One word, profootballkickoff 
at gmail.com. Send us an email and we'll see what we can do. I want to remind you, we're sponsored by Sullivan's Brewing Company in Kilkenny, Ireland. The makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. Where do you find it? You can find it all over. You heard Butch Youngren talk about it. It's at his place in the Atlanta area. So Sullivan's available in Atlanta, Georgia, Savannah, Georgia. It's all over upstate New York here in Buffalo in bars and stores, Consumers Beverage, Wegmans, in Syracuse, Utica, Rochester, Albany. It's in New York City. You can find Sullivan's in northern New Jersey, Hoboken, Jersey City, that area. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Cleveland, and Columbus, Ohio. Try it. Look for it. Sullivan's Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. I want to thank our producer, Pat Felbaugh. I want to invite you to join us again next week for another installment of the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the bills and the beer.